Welcome to Rock Facts, an over-the-garden-wall rewatch podcast right here on the Incomparable Network. My name is Brian Hamilton, and I'm joined, as usual, by Allison Truge. Hello! So, this is also a podcast, um, Brian forgets to say this every single time, this is a podcast also where we talk about facts about Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Um, and today, I'm actually correcting a previous rock fact. I think I said once that The Rock was born in Hawaii, and he was not. He was born in California. Basically the same thing. What do you think about that, special guest Nathan Alderman? Well, I have a rock fact as well. I believe (gasps) that if I'm remembering this correctly, The Rock eats up to 40 pounds of cod every day. (laughs) (laughs) Nathan Alderman brought his own rock fact. The man needs massive amounts of protein. I think that one of us is missing a rock fact right now. Uh... Oh, no. You put me on the spot here, Alison Truge. Uh, The Rock is starring in the new Jumanji reboot coming later this year, I guess. That's a rock fact? It'll have to do. (laughs) We're here to talk about episode eight, Babes in the Wood. Uh, This is the most interesting episode of the series, which is why we wanted to bring in an extra voice to uh, to share more about what they feel about uh, about this episode and how it relates back to the rest of the show. So what do you say we start with a recap and uh, both of you chime in whenever you got something to say, because uh, I appreciate both of your opinions and I'm glad both of you are here with us tonight. Also, I think we should we should not be rude to our guest, Brian. Nathan, where can ever where can other people find you or where might they have have they heard of you before? Um, well, I write a case Occasionally for TV.net, the vestigial appendage that uh, that keeps clinging tenaciously onto the incomparable podcast. <laughs> um, I've done freelance writing for a few other places around the web, and you may have heard me as a guest on other fine incomparable podcasts. Indeed, we have. You do the Defenders, yes? I have. Uh, I've been a guest on the Defendo cast. I've talked about uh, Batman the Animated Series. I've talked about Westworld and Legion, and maybe a few other things as well. And now you're going to talk about Over the Garden Wall. Yes, I am, because I love all things Halloween. October is maybe my favorite month. Halloween is my favorite season of year. I grew up reading Ray Bradbury, so this miniseries was right in my sweet spot. Yeah, it's such an excellent way to celebrate the season. It's one of my favorites, too, because it's so easy to watch. Uh, But there's so much packed into it because it's so episodic. It is 10 episodes in, what, an hour and a half? And I know I harp on that all the time, but it makes it so, so special that Over the Garden Wall exists in the form that it does. And this episode is kind of showing off because it's, it's 12 minutes long, and the vast bulk of the middle is adorable cartoon romps um, because they don't they don't need that time because the opening minutes and the closing minutes of this episode are perfect bookends that are just packed with meaning and importance. Exactly. That's something I've been thinking a lot about watching how each episode begins and ends over the past few episodes because a bunch of weird things have happened that make uh, make this episode in particular very important set up for what happens at the end of the series and the way that it starts just like uh, the previous episode after Beatrice betrayal there's just a shot of Beatrice looking around for Wharton Craig and it's really really great yeah I will say that something that I've noticed in the in rewatching this way which I've never done before um where like Brian and I will watch we'll, we'll rewatch an episode before we record um it's interesting because I actually think that this episode in particular kind of starts and stops in a weird place not like a a bad place. It's just that like, when I think of this episode, I think particularly about Cloud City. And I don't think about the context necessarily that surrounds it. Um, Because I think the series as a whole kind of meshes together for me into like a gradient (laughs) instead of actual episodes. Um, So, so where do we start off on this one? 
Uh, so Beatrice is looking around for Wirt and Greg, and then we get one of the most adorable Greg moments, if only because Wirt is so miserable, it makes Greg that much sweeter, where he goes, home, home. This episode starts with a great sight gag of a fish fishing in a boat, and you're wondering, what does, what is the fish going to catch? And that's an amazing <laughs> setup for how the episode is going to end. Uh, Wirt, apparently. <laughs> this is also, uh, in your, uh, in your over-the-garden-wall bingo, another vignette from the very beginning finally paying off with uh, with a little character that we get to meet in this episode. The fish, who the doesn't fi- have a name. The fishing human? The human fish? I guess that's what word is at the end of the episode. Uh, so they're, they're, what, rowing in an outhouse? Yes, it's very cute. <laughs> the oar is a guitar. And the outhouse looks a little like a coffin. Yeah. Which, which is always kind of interesting to note. Yeah, absolutely. I... What a weird shape for them to be sailing in. It's such a bizarre uh, sight gag. It is, and it's perfect, though. It's it's a perfect metaphor. Not only does it look like a coffin, but right now, uh, for, for especially for Wirt, life really is in the toilet. They're, they're lost. Uh, the weather's getting worse. They have no idea where they are, and the beast is closing in. This is, speaking of the beast, Nathan, uh, this is the first time that Wirt and Greg hear the beast and can identify it as, oh, this is the Beast. Because we've heard the song a few times before. I think the first time we hear it in the series, Beatrice hears it and remarks on it. But this is the first time that Wirt and Greg get to hear it and get to piece together, oh, the Beast is really close. It's really interesting, though, because Greg actually doesn't... Greg, I don't know, hears it. Because Wirt hears it and comments on it. And then uh, Greg says, yeah, it must be a really fat cricket. <laughs> so I actually think that it's a really important detail that Wirt's the one that hears it and Greg doesn't, because I almost want to say that that foreboding is like the reason, like like the beast is closing in on Wirt and he's going to like turn him into an Adelwood tree. And it's also a great uh, bit of foreshadowing for how the beast really won't have much power over Greg in the in a, the next episode or the, the 10th episode, uh, because Greg's optimism is kind of beast proof. And there's a neat little moment there because Word is doing his usual wallowing in, in neurotic self-pity. Um, and then <laughs> Greg, that you can see there's a little moment where Greg notices this. He, Greg's not oblivious. Greg's innocent, but he's not stupid. And there's a great little moment that sets up what Greg is going to do at the end of the episode where he sees that Word is upset and Greg makes the conscious choice to try and cheer him up. Knowing that that Wirt feels bad, it's not that he doesn't know Wirt feels bad. It's not that he doesn't know that things are bad for them. It's that he sees Wirt is is hurting, and Greg tries to cheer him up, and that's going to pay off big time by the end of the episode. It makes me really happy to see this kind of brotherly camaraderie in them because, as much as they've been close the entire series, this was the main divide between them, right? How they're responding to the situation, and that's coming to a head when Wirt says, "Can you just stop being so ridiculous?" This is the first time that Wirt really snaps. Well, and it's it's his like descent into hopelessness. Him saying, "Like, can we stop pretending that we're gonna get home?" Can we just, like, stop pretending? And Greg's kind of like, well, I'm not pretending. Like, we're going to get home. And when Wirt says, you know, Wirt's just being sarcastic when he says to Greg, you be in charge now. You come up with a plan to get us home. But Greg, like he does with everything, takes it seriously. You know, Greg <laughs> Greg isn't, he's silly, but he's also very earnest. So Greg is like, I'm, all right, this is my responsibility. I'm going to get us home. I'm going to think of a plan. And again, that's going to have a really beautiful and kind of tragic payoff by the end of the episode. It reminds me a lot of, uh, I forget which episode it was, but when 
Wirt mentions that uh, you can do anything you want. And he goes, wow, that's a lot of power. And then runs with the power thing for a few minutes. Uh, and then they take a little nap next to a tree. I love the single leaf that the frog puts on his chest, <laughs> yep, yep. emulating Greg. Perfect little blanket. There's a moment where... So Greg's love for Wirt is apparent to me in a lot of ways in this episode, as we'll see. But in one really particularly resonant one for me was when he brings over his own pile of leaves for Wirt. And covers him in leaves, and then has some for himself, too. And of all the ways that Greg could show his love for Wirt in this episode, that is one of the sweetest and most innocent, especially because at this point it's very, very obvious that Wirt doesn't care. So he's not going to you know, go to the effort of keeping warm for a sleep he's probably not expecting to wake up from. Because he already thinks, he already, like, has submitted himself to the beast. He's like, well, the beast is going to get us. Let's just fall asleep underneath this tree. And yeah, and again, it's the, the, the beginning of this episode is packed with all these little ways in which Greg is showing selfless love for Wirt, taking care of Wirt, shielding Wirt. And, and again, it's all just brilliant setup for what's going to happen at the end of the episode. There's one other thing I want to bring up before we move on. Very small, but it stood out to me this time. Greg's saying you can do anything that you if you put your mind to it. That's what the old people say. Yeah. That's a line from Back to the Future with Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> Wait, is it? Yeah, that's what Doc says all the time. You can it put is? your mind to it. But the, oh, I thought you meant that's what all the old wow. people say. No, cuz he um he says uh or what what's the line back to the, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. And it's very similar to Greg's line in this episode, but many times in that's what the old people say. <laughs> I think that's such an interesting moment, not for the reason that you pointed out, but because I think there's kind of a dichotomy that happens in this episode where we're talking about, on one hand, childhood innocence, and on the other hand, like a kind of jaded hopelessness. Um, And it's so funny that it's like, well, that's what all the old people say, but it's like, Wirt's jadedness is part of the reason that they end up in such a tricky spot by the end of this episode. And I think this episode makes the argument that, 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 jadedness is immature and hopefulness is ultimately the more mature the more adult the more grown-up way to approach these things yeah absolutely which is an interesting dichotomy since this episode is all about themes of innocence right and we've gone through the entire series with the idea that like greg is just really silly and like he has some good ideas, but for the most part, he kind of like spaces out and word has to take care of him. Um, but this episode is proof positive that like Greg's Greg's like not being jaded is any is any of the reason that they end up actually out of the woods. As as Greg and Wirt and the frog are drifting off to sleep, you get that that wonderfully sappy but sweet Greg saying, Starlight, <laughs> first star bright, first star I see tonight. I wish I may, I wish I might grant this wish, I wish tonight. And you know, if it had stopped there, it'd be Disney, it'd be syrupy sweet. And then he goes, if you don't, I don't care. I'll pull down your underwear, which is... <laughs> which I feel like is the beautifully. It, it's a little bit of snark... But it's so sweet and it's so kid. I think it's a rhyme that people say when they're trick or treating, right? Yep. Yeah, that it's trick or treat, small feet, blah 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 blah. If you don't, I don't care. Yep, that's that's the trick or treat line, which plays into what will happen in the next episode. Mm-hmm. I never even got that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's Halloweeny, right? Everything about this is Halloween, even a little throwaway gag that. Uh, Greg says before he floats off into Cloud City. Although another theme that's really prevalent in this episode, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I promise we'll get to the dream in a second. (laughs) But um, 
something really interesting that happens in this episode is the passage of time and the passage of seasons because they fall asleep and it's foggy and then they wake up in the snow. So that's how we know like the passage of fall into winter has occurred. That's that's an Iron Giant season transition. It happens really <laughs> fast and it happens for like a symbolic reason. Exactly, exactly. And then we end up in our Antarctica for some reason. No, we don't. Uh, one thing that you mentioned, Truge, about this being a dream that there is a line that finally stood out to me in this. And I know you've told me that my theory about this episode is kind of ridiculous that we'll get to in a minute. Ridiculous is not the word I used. Unsupported is the word I used. Because I didn't catch this until now. Greg says, I'm going to dream up a plan for us. And therefore he goes to cloud city. It never occurred to me that this was a dream. It could be that cloud city is, is some manifestation of the unknown. That's what I thought too. Uh, but the ways that... Okay, let, let's just jump in and not get ahead of ourselves. They go to Cloud City after that really, really cute uh, nursery rhyme, uh, my favorite line of which is, and get work home and also me too. Uh, a chorus of angels start singing and the clouds part and there's a moonbeam and then a bunch of cherubic heads and angels float around Greg and invite him up onto a donkey-pulled cart that is also a bed into Cloud City. The first thing I think of when I think of Cloud City is Pinocchio because of the donkey and all the little children uh, and that old-timey style of animation. So that's definitely something they're tapping into there even before we actually get to Cloud City. And the cart that's a bed is a nod to Little Nemo and Slumberland, uh, Slumberland by uh, Windsor McKay. Oh, oh, that's awesome. I didn't think about it like that. I also want to backtrack just a second because as we're going into Cloudland, there's a song that's playing. Um, I don't know how to pronounce this name, but it's a song called For- Forward Oniroy, I believe is how you pronounce this. Um, and it talks about dreams in that. And the name... The name uh, Oniroy, uh, that there, there is like an odyssey that happens for that, um, that uh, in Greek mythology, Oniroy were the personification of dreams, the son of like the god of night and the brothers of like sleep and all that kind of stuff. So it's like a Greek reference. I would not put it past the show to make a Greek reference. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's amazing. And and I wanted to just m- note briefly, that is a transcendently lovely sequence with the opera singer and the cart, you know, drifting through the clouds and the moonlight. It is just, it stops you in your tracks. Even though this is a, a sweet, goofy cartoon show, that's a moment of real powerful beauty. Yeah, and the first lyrics of it is, forward, forward cherubs hear the song, a child's wishes call us on. Oh! So it, it it supports the fact that, like, uh, you know, Greg kind of, like, set an intention out into the world and then, like, it was answered. And so the, the floating cherub heads are the first uh, nod in this episode to the artwork of a guy named Henry Darger, who you may or may not have heard about. I have not. He's a famous outsider artist. I've got his Wikipedia page called up, so I, I'm, I'm not going to take credit for remembering all of this off the top of my head. So Darger was born in 1892. He died in 1973. He lived most of his life in Chicago. He was a hospital janitor, and after he died, his landlords found 
like 15,000 page manuscripts that he wrote and illustrated by hand piled up in his studio, which told the story of a, a group of children, the, the Vivian girls. Uh, the, the whole uh, title is The Story of the Vivian Girls in what is known as the Realms of the Unreal, which sounds a lot like the unknown when you come to think of it, <laughs> of the Glandico Angelinian war storm caused by the child slave rebellion. And Darger had these, these figures who he traced from cartoons and comic strips and catalogs, which look a lot like the, the floating head cherubs that Greg sees. And they, he drew them in these beautifully colorful uh, scenes of, of fantastic and unreal landscapes. And he also had a running theme through his work of children as martyrs, children being subjected to horrific torture that, that sanctified them and redeemed them. And, and you know basically they suffered and died as martyrs for others because Darger was, was big into Catholicism and, and that shaped a lot of his thinking. If you get a chance, there's a, a great documentary you can find called In the Realms of the Unreal. Darger was super weird. He seems like a mostly benevolent soul, but he had some weird stuff going on. And I love that <laughs> this episode seems to kind of explicitly reference his work in, in this as part of its big collage of, of stuff. So that's a really interesting thing to bring up. I didn't know that. But something that I had read in my research for this episode is that so the title of this episode is Babes in the Wood, which is kind of like silly when you really think about it because the whole series about them being lost in the like in the woods um but it's actually based on an old children's tale about two children that get lost in the woods and the like it's really creepy um it starts out with my dears do you know that a long time ago two poor little children whose names i don't know were stolen away so it's not like a sing-songy, like, cute rhyme. It's, like, kind of a weird, horrific one. I love that both of these examples, Darger and Babes in the Wood, are extreme examples of children's lit and children's uh, subject to torture. <laughs> I love that, because the entire show is about lost souls and lost children, because, you know, they're kids, even though uh, Wirt ascertains at one point that he's in high school. <laughs> and I love that this episode, even though it is on paper and on screen, I guess the most innocent of any of them, there's so much darkness in all these examples we're bringing up that make it so heartbreaking to watch in a way. Um, all the references to dreams that we've, that we've brought up already really do negate my theory that these are all dead children and this is kind of a waiting room for heaven. <laughs> but I also love that even if this is a dream and if this is something that the unknown has manifested, which I do definitely want to talk to you about, Nathan, uh, if this is something that the unknown has manifested, what is its purpose? And what does it mean to put these children through even more torture through these bright, vivid, colorful, beautiful scenes I don't know. There's there's so much here to unpack. I think that if Wirt had been to Cloud City, he would have seen it differently. I think that what yeah. we're seeing of Cloud City is very much subjective to Greg's perspective. Like in Marvel Comics, they have this thing where every species that sees Galactus sees him differently. <laughs> I think Cloud City is something where everybody who goes there sees it differently. So Greg's going to see it because the inside of Greg's head is basically a bunch of cartoon animals and talking pizzas. Um, so yeah, I think this is that what we're seeing with Cloud City maybe is not Cloud City as it actually is. It's Cloud City as Greg perceives it. Does that make Thanos the old wind? 
<laughs> Maybe I don't know. Uh, I wanted to to talk about what what you and uh, were saying earlier about how you know even though there's this is bright and happy, there's a darkness underneath it, and that's one of the things I love about the music in this episode and in the show. All the songs in this episode, and there are three of them, and they're fantastic. Um, have this quality that I always associate with depression era music, where even though they're happy, there's always a little bit of sadness underneath, especially in the song that the that the cherubs sing in Cloud City. Uh, not the We're the Cloud City Reception Committee, although that's great, and what's up with that rain dog? That, that is the weirdest, creepiest aside. Just a dog with a rain cloud over its head and a weird sting of piano music. Uh, it's like David Lynch took over for a second, but... And that's totally supportive because the song that happens in Cloud City is like a pretty classic sounding rag. Like it's around like 20s era sort of music. Yeah. And that, that's that song that the, the, that are that's being sung by kid singers, you know, something like, you know, you can play your instruments or, or just get out your pots and pans. It's a sweet song on the surface, but there's a real melancholy undercurrent to it, partly because of the, the shifting tempo of it that, that really, uh, plays well into this episode's themes of a bright, happy surface, but dark, serious things underneath. There's a line in that song where they say, everything here is happy all of the time. Why would they need to insist that if it wasn't sad? You're right. But also, I mean, that old North Wind song is delightful. And when the three little clouds come out and start waggling their fingers and shaking their (laughs) hips as they spin around, that's just pure delight. I love that so much. I have been talking for years how much I want a gif of that. They like wag their fingers and they walk in a little circle and it's the cutest thing in the world. And it's all, I mean, it's a callback to the way, you know, back in the 1920s when animation was first starting out, they do a lot of these looped recurring motions that was just, oh, the character is going to bounce up and down for three seconds now because they were trying to save money. You know, once you'd drawn one loop of animation, you could reuse it to stretch out the time you got for the drawings you made. But I, I love the way they use that here and they pay homage to that early 1920s animation. It, it fits well not only in the fact that Greg's a kid and, you know, he's going to see the world as a cartoon, but it fits with the kind of early Walt Disney Americana Depression era stuff that, that has run through the entire show. I especially want to say that, like, something, that's, that, something that supports that a lot is the framing of this episode with the kind of portholes that happen. Um, they happen in all of the transitions and they happen every single time that, like, a new committee is introduced. Um, I didn't know this, but apparently that's also like an old animation thing. I, I don't know as much about early animation as I probably should. <laughs> yeah, there there are some moments, some shots in Cloud City that are vignetted with a, a, a circle surrounded by darkness. And that's an old animation trick. Um, and I love that, you know, Greg, Greg gets into a fight with the old North Wind. And we don't actually see how he wins, but he wins by tricking the old North Wind into a bottle, which is a very Greg thing to do. Old windbag. <laughs> and I love that Cloud City, you know, is a manifestation uh, of another. It's yet another way that the series riffs on the idea of what happens to us after we die. What ideas do we have as various human cultures about where we go and what happens to us when we die? You know, Pottsfield is kind of like both the idea of the Elysian fields from Greek mythology. It's this pastoral paradise dice where everyone is happy and contented and also the idea uh, from Christianity that we are resurrected bodily on the day of judgment you know the skeletons literally get dug up and climb out of the ground to rejoin their friends <laughs> exactly and then you get uh, Uncle Endicott's mansion which is a seemingly infinite uh, series of, of rooms all beautifully and luxuriously decorated with all the finery and all the food you could ever want 
Um, there's the the ferry, obviously, with the frogs, where you know you're being ferried to the underworld and you need two copper pennies to to pay your passage. And now we have the idea of a city in the clouds, populated by cherubs, with a shining, benevolent uh, parental figure looming over it all. There's so many different things there that echo all the different stylistic changes in each episode. And something that we've talked about in this podcast a lot, actually, like we, I, I'm more tied that to the idea of the unknown being purgatory, um, that it's got a sense of timelessness to it, because we've talked about kind of like the anachronisms as a writing element, um, that like Endicott and Marguerite Gray probably wouldn't have lived in the same era. They're like, their styles are separated by a hundred years. So that sort of timelessness sort of lends itself, I thought, to purgatory, but you you make a lot of sense with that interpretation. Well, it, it could absolutely be purgatory. Uh, because, I mean, the the unknown is, is good and bad. It's it's heaven and hell all at once. And I think here we see Greg maybe temporarily ascending toward heaven before sinking back to purgatory. There, There's a fan theory out there that I can't take credit for that, you know, this is Greg almost dying. He is literally, he literally goes up to the gates of heaven. He's about to be admitted inside. And uh, then he's told that he can't go without Wirt. Exactly. There's no clarification there for what it means to uh, finally go home, as the uh, Queen of the Clouds says. Exactly. And and I love that, you know, there's a sadness to the Queen of the Clouds. She seems to know more than she's letting on, not in a malicious way, but in a I'm trying to spare you and be kind sort of way. And and I love that, you know, she's genuine and, and, and lovely and... And that she feels a little sad when when Greg makes the choice that he makes because she, it seems like she really cares about him and you know and cares about Wirt but maybe feels that Wirt is beyond her saving. Mm-hmm. I love that her styling. They have her have the same like Gibson girl hair as um, oh god the teacher. Langtree. <laughs> Langtree. They give her the same uh, Gibson girl hairdo as Miss Langtree. Um, but I think it also kind of points out the fact that the animation style in this episode is so much different, um, which I think also points towards the fact that it's supposed to kind of like echo a little bit of early, early animation. Nathan, I remember when I told you that we wanted you on for, uh, I, I said, the Steamboat Willie episode. You initially thought the Frog Boat episode, but I meant, no, no, the animation style, <laughs> Steamboat Willie, and that's exactly what this is. It's that kind of early Disney animation where, you're right, they did have to save money by looping a bunch of animation and really banked on the comedic rule of threes to make things funny with as little effort on the animators' parts as possible. <laughs> it works. And it's very, yeah, it's very specifically, it seems like a homage to Disney. Uh, it, the, the Disney cartoons are sweeter and less less mischievous than the Warner Brothers cartoons. And just like a lot of the pastoral scenes in earlier episodes seem to pay homage to, to early Disney films like Snow White and Bambi, I feel like here the, the influence is very specifically those early Disney cartoons. Especially for the kind of misadventure that this is, where Greg just kind of... Hangs out, meets a few reception committees, including the hippopotamus, giraffe, and monkey, and saves a cloud city from this old north wind. Again, like you said, in a way that we don't actually see. That's not important. The important part there is that he does it. It's also Greg's fault that the north wind gets set out. Yeah, it is. Because he gets stuck in the tuba, and then he gets shot out of the the pig's tuba. 
into the gates, opening it up for the north wind to come out. Which I want on the record to say that you it is physically impossible to do that with a tuba or a sousaphone. <laughs> Bands nerd Allison Truge. But not in a 1920s cartoon. That's pretty standard for the course. True. And again, that that's that ties back into the larger themes of the episode because you know, and the the series because we're going to find out that a lot of this is to some degree Greg's fault that that they're in the unknown. So the fact that it's Greg's fault that the North Wind is unleashed, and it's Greg who ultimately has to defeat the North Wind alone, is going to pay off at the end of the episode. Sorry, I'm sounding like a broken record on this. No, not at all. I mean, like, that ending payoff is extremely, extremely important. I don't blame us for uh, wanting to hold that till the end. Uh, what else? The one other thing I wanted to say about uh, Cloud City being very, very close to Greg dying is that if this is a manifestation of the unknown then why would it have all of these very Greg-specific things in it? What would Wirt's version of Cloud City look like, like you mentioned? I love that because Greg is so young, if this is a manifestation of the unknown, this is like whatever being is higher than the Beast or the Queen of the Clouds saying, okay, we need this place to make the passage to death as painless as possible here. Because as we learn next episode... This entire series takes place in the middle of them passing out in the middle of a river. So all of these things that this higher being needs to do to make Greg okay with dying includes talking pizzas, hippopotamus, strapping monkey, and a silly little villain for him to deal with in a very simple way. And and I know people apparently criticize this episode for being silly and frivolous, but the silliness and the frivolous is like a setting you up for the sucker punch of the end of the episode. I don't think the episode would work as well uh, and, and have as much impact as it does and feel as dark and, and hopeless and suspenseful as it does uh, if you didn't have this light, colorful silliness in the middle to kind of distract you. And the beauty of the episode for me is that even though it's light and colorful and silly and it feels frivolous and weightless, everything that happens to Greg in Cloud City just reinforces the overall themes of the episode. And for a 12-minute long piece of animation, that's incredibly tight storytelling. <laughs> well, and I, I will say that this episode is always the one that I'll, I'll skip if I skip an episode in the, like, watching it over the garden wall, except my partner really loves this episode. I do. Uh, this episode is essential. <laughs> but I remember the first time watching this episode, and every time I introduce it, to one of my friends before this episode starts i'm like okay things are gonna get a little weird but i promise it goes back to normal in that case normal is we're panicking and almost dying as well uh, because that's where the show has taken us the end is so harrowing it's so stark and suspenseful and urgent i mean greg is is the light of the show and when he vanishes and wart is alone and desperate it just you know that there's no music there's just the sound of the wind and wart desperately running searching for greg hearing his voice in the distance you know it, it's it's so powerful and it's such a gut punch even though it ends kind of on a a, a running gag that pays off from the beginning of the show it's still so stark and and so moving and that's because of all the light funny stuff that gets set up and i love that can, can i spoil the, the big twist at the end now yes. go, unless we have anything else to say about cloud city go right ahead yeah so the the twist at the end of the episode is is the queen of the clouds says greg you can go home greg says great i'll just go get wart queen of the clouds says no you, you can't the beast already has him and greg makes a different wish and the wish is to trade himself for wart to the beast 
and it end, the episode ends with Wirt waking up as Greg goes off happily chirping, you know, in his usually enthusiastic way with the Beast, who uh, the Beast, God love him, poor guy, does not know what he's in for with Greg. <laughs> he's finally met his match to some degree, at least. So in that moment where Greg says goodbye to Wirt, he says, take care of George Washington for me, or whatever name he comes up with. Take care of George Washington for me. Nothing. Okay, bye. He says, okay, I have to go now. Goodbye, Word. In the most flat way that Greg knows how. And even though it's optimistic, those three very, very, very simple lines that he has underscore how dark what is going to be happening is. Because he's Greg. He's always optimistic. He's always happy. And then this is the lowest he can get, which is, okay, Goodbye. Yeah, there's a little sadness in his voice because you can tell, I don't know if he's scared. He just knows that what he's done has a lot of weight and he's doing it because Wirt told him he was in charge and he had to think of a plan to get them home. And that's what Greg has done. He's thought of a plan. It is the most horrifying, sad possible plan. But I like the fact that even as we still have hope because he's Greg. And nothing faces Greg. Nothing can beat Greg. Nothing can can stop him from being cheerful or smiling. <laughs> so I love that there's that little tiny gleam of hope, even as things get super dark. And and yeah, I, I feel like this whole episode explains who Greg is. Greg isn't just some silly, sweet kid with, you know, non sequiturs in his pants, just like candy that he just tosses out everywhere. <laughs> you know, Greg is eternal optimism and he's not stupid and he's not blind he knows that things are bad he chooses he works hard to be happy uh it's a choice he makes every single day and every single moment in interaction because you know maybe he doesn't know there's an alternative but i think he has some vague idea that there's an alternative and he doesn't like it so he chooses to be happy and that happiness gives him strength and courage and makes word a better person because what picks warp up ultimately out of his funk and gets Wirt to tear the Edelwood off that's growing on him, is the thought of losing Greg. It, it's a reminder that, you know, Wirt is responsible for Greg, just as uh, the woodsman says in the very first episode. And that's what get, gets Wirt up and gives him a reason to live. Ultimately, it's it's that, you know, Greg is Wirt's reason to live. And this episode reminds him of that by taking it away from him. Of course, Greg needs to know that there is some sort of alternative. He is His brother is the embodiment of the alternative is to mope you know that's work in a nutshell in this episode especially and he you're right that is the way that greg is taking the situation is choosing to be happy and do all these things and if you think about the beast and the unknown and the edelwood tree as that kind of uh like i know it's more than depression but the very baseline level of it is it's an uh, a metaphor for depression and giving into the beast in a mental way um that's one of the most common uh, ways that people talk about coping with depression is choosing to be happy, which is problematic in some ways, but that's the common wisdom. And that's something that, uh, that Greg really embodies. That, that's one thing I will say in favor of Wirt's like disposition. We're kind of, we're, we're shitting on Wirt right now. Oh, I, <laughs> I shouldn't have sworn. Should I'll, I'll bleep it out. It's fine. Go ahead. Uh, but I also think that like Wirt is kind of faced with a really hopeless situation. Um, and, also, like, he's the one that's been put in charge, and he talked to the woodsman, and, the, you know, the woodsman at the very beginning of the of the show is kind of like, you're responsible for your brother, um, and he's kind of, like, at the end, and I think something that this episode does for me, which definitely doesn't, um, it doesn't oppose what, what, we're, what we've been talking about this whole time, is that, um, like, Greg was able to kind of look at the situation in a new way, um, 
not only to say that, like, uh, you don't have to be jaded to solve a problem or, like, uh, being a jaded adult is uh, oftentimes people's downfalls, um, but that, like, Greg was able to solve the problem in a new way. Exactly, exactly. And he was able to solve that problem in a new way that sets up a nice cliffhanger. I always like to think about the fact that this was aired in two episode chunks. So this would have been the end of the fourth night of Over the Garden Wall airing, which means that you're left on this intense cliffhanger until the next day. Uh, But then you wind up with, uh, again, depression metaphor happening here. Uh, Wirt realizes that somebody he loves is in trouble and throws off the shackles of depression and then springs back into action and stops moping to find Greg. Yeah, Ward throughout the series is his own worst enemy. Whenever he is lost in his own head or getting in his own way, he's, you know, he's stuck. It's only, he only becomes heroic throughout the series, especially like in Songs of the Dark Lantern, where he rides off into the dark, does what he thinks is rescuing Beatrice from the woodsman, when someone he cares about is in trouble, when he can get outside his own head, when he can stop dwelling on his own problems and focus on helping other people, which might be a metaphor for how one copes with depression, then he becomes the best person he can be. And that's ultimately what he's what he's going to end up doing uh, in, in episode nine. We're going to see how just how much he gets in his own way and how much he sabotages himself. And in episode 10, we're going to see how caring about other people is the thing that helps him get over that and become his best self. Mm-hmm. Do you remember in the at the end of episode six on the frog boat where Beatrice says, wow, it sounds like you're kind of a loser back home, but here you're a hero. That's part of Beatrice tapping into that exact same thing that you were just talking about uh, and trying to convince Wirt to stay because that's who he wants to be. When he can get out of his own way and when he has someone to fight for, then that's when he springs into action. And I would argue that at the end of the series, that person to fight for is, at one point, Sarah, because of the tape at the very end. Uh, what else? The episode ends with a about as bleak as you can get, where he falls through a frozen lake and is rescued by Beatrice in one of the most haunting pieces of animation where the the sound is turned all the way down. You can only hear uh, a few tones and see a few splotches of gray and then some fluttering, moving things of black. And then, boom, there he is, Beatrice, there with Wirt. And also, just uh, to add to and that, the fish. when he when, <laughs> when Wirt is plunged into the lake... Um, there's like a vignette of black that closes around him. And as it gets closer to him, the black becomes hands. It becomes arms that grab him. I never noticed that. I've wow. never noticed that. I noticed that this time around. That's incredible. I just noticed the, the genius of a person being caught by a fish in a net. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's absolutely. So I also want to go back and compare Wirt passing out in the middle of this lake to Wirt and Greg passing out in the middle of the lake uh, or the river rather in episode nine and the splotches of black that open up the series yes i was gonna say there there are those splotches of of black that and this seems to be a deliberate callback to that and then it ends on a very 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 long shot of the three of them in that boat seeing that everywhere around them is covered in snow and fog and gray and no color whatsoever and also as you said earlier there's no music 
Yeah, it's completely silence. Yeah, it's it's wonderfully ominous, and it's such a great start cliffhanger, especially compared to the colorful, musical, fun-filled Cloud City where even the danger comes with a catchy tune. <laughs> where the danger comes with a catchy tune should be the slogan of like a fast food restaurant somewhere. I'd love that. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I, I just wanted to say real quick that uh, I watched rewatched this episode twice for the first time since I'd seen it for the first time like a, a year or two ago. And the night after I rewatched this episode, I dreamed that I was in a modernist house all alone at night. It was dark, and I could hear the beast singing outside. And when I went to look at the windows, I could see his shadowy shape and his bright white eyes prowling around the edges of the backyard singing his opera song. I hate that. I hate what you're saying. <laughs> I loved it. I think the beast singing oh is beautiful. God. So for me, it was really cool. It was creepy when I woke up, but I, I liked being creeped out. I mean, yeah, because he's a... He's an opera singer. Oh yeah, yeah. The Beast is an opera singer. Samuel Ramey. He's uh, he he never did. He has not done anything before, or as far as I know, since, uh, which makes his appearance and how good he is as the Beast in this series so incredible. Wow, 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 wow. There's so much to unpack in this episode. I love that the three of us were able to find so much meaning and depth and emotional resonance in a 12-minute piece of animation. Most of it is uh, something that most people write off as a dumb sight gag, but there's so much to it that it... It earns its place as one of the 10 episodes in this series. When we saw Patrick McHale do a talk a few weeks ago, uh, we... He talked about a extra plot uh, story that he'd come up with where Wirt and Greg get turned into dogs somehow. Which does turn up in the comic. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they came up with that, and it it reminded me that there was so much that had to hit the cutting room floor to make this 10-episode miniseries work. And I'm so glad that one of those is this episode, Cloud City. Yeah, it feels frivolous, but I would argue it's really essential. All right, do we have anything else we want to uh, throw into the Over the Garden Wall time capsule for this episode? Truge, Nathan? I think I've said my piece. Thank you guys for inviting me. I had a blast. Thank you for being on with us. Yeah, I'm really glad we finally were able to make this work. This took a few scheduling leaps. (laughs) And until next time, uh, we'll see you then.